Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is the second part of a three-part series with Professor Rolando Patterson on the history and development of the value of freedom. So, contrary to what most of philosophy says, we're arguing here that freedom is not a natural value. It was a value that was invented in response to specific circumstances, specifically the circumstances of large-scale slavery in the ancient world, and but for those circumstances, people wouldn't desire freedom, at least as we understand it. So, this is the second part of the series. In the first part, I introduce Orlando Patterson, and we discuss the nature and earliest forms of slavery. In this part, we talk about Athens, how freedom developed there as a value, why it developed specifically there, and we discuss our own uncomfortability with acknowledging the historic uniqueness of Athens. Then in the final part, we'll talk about the role of freedom in Rome and in early Christianity. So, if you want the context to this conversation, you're more than welcome to go back and start with the first part of the series. If you don't care too much for context, and I think this episode should stand on its own, then please do just join us and check it out. If you like these conversations, we have a new one coming out every week, so please do like, subscribe, there's a whole bunch of ways you can follow us. Check out the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. And if you want to support the podcast to help keep these conversations going out to everyone who wants to listen to them for free, then there's a whole bunch of ways you can support that. One thing that's really easy to do is just share these episodes on your own social media. Helps them reach a larger audience. Or if you have friends who you think would like them, forward or tag them in the post. If you want to support it in a more monetary way, we have a Patreon account. And we suggest a donation for regular listeners of $2 an episode. way I've been putting that is, you know, if you get the same enjoyment as you do a cup of coffee, sponsor it on that basis. Or if that seems like a weird amount to you, whatever makes sense. So, big thank you as always to anyone who sponsors, shares, or forwards the show. Anyone who does that, you are making the show possible. I'm really genuinely grateful. Apart from that, please do like and subscribe. And let's get straight to it. This is part two with Professor Orlando Patterson. Let's make explicit something that we've been alluding to all conversation, which is the uniqueness of freedom historically. Because let me give a summary and then you tell me if it's right and and build off it. Basically, in the tribal societies we're talking about, the idea of freedom as we think about it not only doesn't exist, but cannot exist because safety, protection, meaning is found in relationships, in overlapping systems of protection. And the idea, if you think about like humanity's origins in um, 
uh, you know, small tribes of maybe 150 people. The idea of freedom as we think about it, of lack of interpersonal constraints, would be equivalent to complete social orphanage, like complete social isolation and probably physical death. And so the idea of, like, I need to be left alone to mind my own business is simply, simply inconceivable. And that even once you get to, say, more settled societies like Egypt, Mesopotamia, the, the social structure is a hierarchy of clientels. So the idea of you being separated from systems of, like, uh, would be absolutely unthinkable. And I think freedom is so hardwired into us. We have this understanding that obviously everyone desires it, but actually not most people throughout of human history couldn't even conceive of it. And the analogy I use is if you think about homelessness today in America, we would agree that homelessness is a bad thing. We would agree that it's desirable to not be homeless. But if you said, what is the goal of our society? No one would ever say, our goal is to have a non-homeless society, or my highest aspiration in life is to be non-homeless. It just wouldn't make sense. And so the idea of freedom as a value that is just, it wouldn't even occur to people. Most people in human history and non-Western people prior to contact with the West, it just wouldn't occur to them to think about it like that. Did I get that summary which, right? And what would you want to add? Absolutely right. Which then makes it problematic. How did this happen? Right. Not just like, we go and we're like, so George Bush says, well, it's just, you know, natural that everyone desires freedom. And then when you get the contradictions of that exposed in the world, we say, well, what's wrong with people that they don't want freedom in our sense? We should instead be asking thing. what's so weird about us that we do. Right. Exactly. And, you know, it leads for one to the view that um, it's not... Um, you know, to the, the idea which um, is so common that is hardwired into us and that um, everyone, given the chance, would desire freedom is simply not true. There are many, many societies where um, it did not happen, where indeed it's viewed as, a, as an abomination. Indeed, um, I got several of my um, Asian students to sort of do uh, etymological work for me on the origins of the word freedom. Freedom is now in all languages, but that's just because of the influence of the West. But well, it's an interesting exercise to sort of examine what are the roots of the um, idea. So my favorite sort of um, uh, sort of imaginary story is you know many dictionaries of. Eastern societies were written by missionaries at the end of their failed attempt after 30 years of proselytizing anyone. They said, well, let's do something useful and sort of get a dictionary of this language. So you go around and you ask people, you know, what's your word for rat? What's your word for cat? What's so on and so forth? And then you get the concepts. And I always imagine at, 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 at uh, an interaction in which he said, well, okay, now, I mean, you can have some more Here's a more difficult idea, but tell me what's your word for freedom? And the response very invariably has been, well, what do you what do you mean? So the missionary then would have to say, Well, I'll tell you what I mean by it, and you tell me what your word is. Now, what's very interesting is what the response when the light bulb goes off. Aha, I think I know what you mean. The word given and the literal meaning, this becomes very important, is usually what say, the Chinese did, which is ah. The word given is the, the word meaning licentiousness. Uh, uh, the same thing as in, in Japan. 
it means irresponsible, I mean, selfishness and so on. The literal meaning of freedom, uh, it translated, and is, 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 is always something negative because people just thought that this is not a good idea. <laughs> so um, the, the question then arises, how, and I, how did this happen? How, how did an idea, especially given the fact that it has this association with one of the most horrible experiences, as you mentioned, it's like taking um, the idea of not being homeless and making it into a central value. So, the, so that was the big question then. How did such an idea with such a, with such a degraded pedigree associated with the most degraded people, um, slaves, and the most degraded condition become the preeminent value in the West, assuming that this is how it originated. By the way, that's part of the reason why many people refuse to admit that um, it could, or noble concept of freedom could have anything to do with slavery. You simply deny it. And, um, and that's where Greece uh, comes in, and later Rome, because it's in Athens, and well, we know most about Athens, um, but it could have happened in several Athens, of the others. I mean, you always want to avoid the trap of this sort of ringing, chest-thumping narrative about Athens inventing West civil- Western civilization. But, but, and, and, I, and I don't want to fall into that, like, like <laughs> historical narrative. But you have to, like, Athens really is unique, right? Or at least Greece as a whole and the concepts that they come up with. It really is strikingly unusual socio-historically. This, this is my biggest problem. Having grown up as a colonial, with colonial education, with the usual, I mean, you know, all civilization begins. Anything worthwhile in human thought begins with the Greeks and, of course, culminated with the British. Um, it, 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 it was an idea which I strongly resisted because, you know, I mean, for most of my undergraduates and my later years, I mean, I said that's a whole lot of European, Euro- European ethnocentrism. But um, facts are facts, <clears throat> and um, it is quite clear that the idea of freedom did not emerge in other societies which had slavery, and um, <clears throat> even though they had words for it, um, uh, as a concept, it was not seen as important. So how on earth did this idea become important? And um, in, it's in, uh, in Athens, in which we have a lot of data, it may have, some a version of it may have well emerged in in Sparta and um, in in some of the other states. But um, there is this very close relationship between the rise of slavery and the rise of freedom consciousness in in, in Athens. And and you can trace this very closely to its culmination in the latter half of um, the fifth century BC, this development of this idea as important. Now, interestingly, the revulsion of um, this idea being associated against the idea, this idea being associated with slavery also existed in, um, in, in, in Greece. And here's where things get complicated because um, the elite scholars uh, who we read and, and whose work we're primarily sort of um, 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 indebted to our knowledge of Greece um, were similarly rather disdainful of the idea of freedom in a secular ex- external sense, but they couldn't they couldn't deny it. So what did they do? I mean, they, you had the move, the very important move by Plato, 
Plato, Plato's uh, such a sort of old school conservative, yeah. though. He's yes. he really he really exactly. hates this. Like he was in his conservatism, he was horrified that this about this idea. But he could not he could not do without it because by time you know it was very entrenched. Um, the idea of we Greeks being free. And freedom is one of the most wonderful things. So what did he do? His uh, move was to internalize it and to to deny the external significance of freedom as that. This is a bonosic. Um, uh, and the, this elaborate development of the idea of inner freedom as being the critical factor. And of course, I mean, and it's very well documented. Vasilas, one of the great sort of students of Plato's thought, has a wonderful, um, long um, essay on slavery and, free, and, and Plato's thought, which is where I originally sort of became, um, um, got this idea um, that he interprets it. So on one way in which elites sort of deal with problems, ideas which emerge externally from the masses or from circumstances which they find abhorrent is to internalize it and to say, well, real freedom. So began, if you like, the discursive, um, prescriptive um, view of freedom from the very beginning to deny its external significance is dangerous and to see, well, true freedom is, and but then he lifted it completely. It's um, you, the slavery was sort of associated with the base emotions, and true freedom is control of these base emotions. And um, and, and 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 this is an elaborate way. And this was, as I try to explain in um, in freedom in the making of Western culture, the idea was then picked up and and developed in far more sophisticated ways by the Stoics. And by Alex let's and then, let's just pause there before we get to the Stoics, though, because yeah. even by the time of Plato, the fact that he's reacting yeah. to it means that it's already a thing, right? It's already. Um, yeah, and just yeah. let me. Stuff is, the stuff is which he was, of course, blasting had well developed yeah. the idea. So just let me offer one thing. Then anybody can do this. You don't need to have like a research library that I always have used as an example. If anyone's still doubting what we're saying and is still like retaining an impulse that freedom must be like this natural universal thing is take a collection of documents from the ancient Near East um, pre-Hellenization, i.e. pre-Greek influence, and one post after Greek influence, and everyone has access to this, it's called the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, right? Go through and just do a keyword search of the Bible, and you'll see Every time it's mentioned, freedom or some related concept is mentioned about a hundred times in the Old Testament, about a hundred times in the New. Every single time in the Old Testament, it's a descriptive. It's describing a, a, an institution or a state of affairs, such as the Israelites' captivity in Babylon or something like that. And it's, it's again, in the way that we would use homelessness and non-homelessness. And then there's a few weird ones like... Um, free sacrifices, which we don't need to go into, but it doesn't relate to the to the value. And then look at how it's used in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, it's clearly as an aspirational value. It's, it's a completely different meaning behind the word. So something's happened, and it happened in Greece that meant. I mean, like, I come from a similar place into, like, not in, like, but, like, in terms of my desired reading of history, where I don't want a triumphalist narrative. I'm always looking to sort of 
let's play the other side, the like Howard Zinn reading of history. But then when you get to Athens, you, you, it's like a light being turned on. Like you, it, it's just something radically different to anything that's happened before, and you just have to contend with that. So what? I'm afraid, yeah, you're describing a struggle I had for well over a year as I rejected this idea. But you know, I mean, but by the way, to get back to the Bible, it's interesting, and there's a huge difference between Jesus, who refers to slavery quite a bit, who was using the, like, the word very much in the Old Testament way. I mean, a lot of the parallels referred uh, uh, parables. Let, let's let's <laughs> let's finish with Christianity. Uh, but, but, then, you know, but what what happened in Greece? What as a historical yeah. sociologist, like what the hell like has changed that they right. suddenly have this thing that's absolutely revolutionary, individually and politically and societally, and what 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 happened yeah, there? The, 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 why was freedom created? Yeah, yeah. what happened and what was unique in human history different from anything that existed in the ancient Near East, um, was the invention of large-scale slave society, as opposed to simply slave-holding societies, which you had all over the world and from primitive times right through, and certainly all over the ancient Near East. Um, What emerged for the first time in history was this unusual phenomenon of a large-scale society, of a society in whose economy, and certainly a society whose elite depended entirely on slaves. And um, I trace that. I mean, that, that, by the way, that itself is a very unusual thing. I mean, elites usually um, find ways of exploiting the masses of their own societies. Um, it's very unusual for an elite to suddenly find itself without its exploited masses. And that we can track to one important event, or rather the series of development in the late 7th century BC, with the growing restiveness of debt bondage, large-scale debt bondage in, um, in, 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 in Athens um, from um, the late 8th going right down to the late 7th. And there's every evidence that there was, um, it was on the verge of rebellion. And it's to avert that, that Solon, the so-called Solon the Liberator, um, it, well, he was liberating more his class than the masses sort of, you know, I mean, accepted the, um, the abolition of debt bondage, which then created, um, which then created a crisis, a labor crisis for the elite. And the way in which the elite solved the problem was to bring in slaves. This is in the simplest terms. And throughout the course of the sixth century, you find this development. You're bringing in a large number of people from outside into society, and which, which went along with the growth of an urban economy, which was totally dependent on slavery, dependent on the, 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 the mines, the silver mines of Lorraine, which is sort of uh, had the most horrendous form of slavery in history, as well as, but increasingly, and um, it, it's the um, uh, 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 several recent works have sort of emphasized the extraordinary role which slaves played, not just in the home farms, and in the mines, but also in the urban economy. Those wonderful statues you see, those wonderful buildings, um, the, almost the entire um, technical 
um, 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 you know, um, class, uh, artisanal class, were slaves. Even the policemen of um, all the public works um, were done by slaves. I mean, they, 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 so the, the urban economy, which is the heart of the civilization, was totally dependent on slavery. And one, and that never happened before. And one thing I got from your work, which I guess you, you sort of know but you don't think about, is how powerful of, like some slaves could be. Like how senior the risk, like 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 when you get to Rome, like you get slaves of the emperor and stuff, who were some of the most powerful men in the world, which is an insane yeah. thought. But but staying yeah. but staying with Greece, you've got this development of large scale slavery and then that's going how is that generative of freedom okay so what's new now before this slaves were always marginal to the economy and um because of course in the in the in the eastern societies they were not important at all i mean they were you had curvy labor you had peasants and so on and um in the ancient near east they were primarily domestic um but um, now you had this complete dependence on um, slavery. Now, remember something I said earlier. In, especially in an advanced economy such as Rome, uh, such as Greece and later Rome, um, an, an advanced urban economy, um, you had a real motivation problem. If you had a motivation problem earlier, you had one, an even bigger one now. And the way in which you motivated slaves was to... It's through the method of, of, of manumission, of offering them the prospect of freedom. Uh, and, you know, in spite of all its horrors, there's a very high rate of uh, manumission in, in Greece. There's an even higher rate in Rome. In fact, one estimate which has been questioned more recently is that by the age of 36 or so, um, the average slave in Rome who worked hard uh, could expect to buy his freedom. That was essential for the system. So now you had a large number of people, many of whom were highly educated, um, who are uh, highly skilled, um, who were desiring one thing and one thing only, and would on, could only be motivated by getting that thing, and that is the freedom which came from not being a slave. And um, so they, um, there you had um, this idea, but uh, be- becoming critical for a critical mass of the population, which you've never had before, no, nowhere in the Near East. I mean, these were not just domestics. These were architects. These were policemen. These were bureaucrats. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and they, so you begin with them, that this being free, for a critical mass of the population being important. And then, now, but then you so just to really nail this in, you then have created a society through the process that you described where possibly a majority of the people living in that society either were slaves or their parents were slaves or their grandparents were slaves. Uh, you, you've got a case where maybe even a majority of the people in that society, someone in their family had gone through the process of slavery and manmission. No, not quite yet. That's Rome. Okay. That's Rome. It not, in Greece, you had a huge number of people who were um, uh, 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 slaves or ex-slaves. Um, we have the de- demographic data is, is just not there. I mean, some people have estimated as much as a third of the population, but um, we don't know. We know it's large. No, what you had was another important development, um, which um, <clears throat> explains the how the elites got into it, 
not only were they slave owners and therefore were encouraging this notion of freedom, but you also had the threat of enslavement to the population as a whole um, from foreign powers. And um, the, um, the and so the um, it was the Persian, um, the near collapse, the near defeat by the Persians, which became one of the really decisive moments in um, in Greek history. This would be the early part of the fifth century, and um, and the threat of becoming slaves, and <laughs> the idea of being free of that threat, and the great. Um, the defeat of the Persians um, being interpreted as a triumphant uh, expression of Greek freedom, coinc- because of um, you know the 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 the, the, the escape from the, um, uh, enslavement, mass enslavement to um, the the Persians became very important, especially for the elite, who then began to celebrate freedom in a more, <laughs> if you like. Um, a collective way, but they were the ones who, at the same time, were also encouraging freedom uh, among their, the people they were enslaving within their own societies. So you had this remarkable convergence of elite um, celebration of how they um, preserved um, something that the the. the, the uh, of how they succeeded in preventing Greece from becoming. Slaves, uh, freedom, as well as internally the development of the idea of freedom among the people they were enslaving and freeing. And by the by the by the last half of the fifth century, there was this convergence of um, elite glorification. In fact, they use an old idea, arete, um, as uh, which meant glory, honor, power. But hollow, hollow now, translated as virtue, which is just not yeah, not the no, modern word. No, no. It wasn't right, and uh, which now came to be identified as 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 freedom, which which everyone was sort of talking about. And so, in the secular, you get you know um, by the time you get to Pericles, um, the elites have um, you know come to see and to accept this notion of freedom, which their idea of which, and now um, and this is where, of course, and um, my um, idea of freedom becomes. Um, somewhat more complex than a simple um, escape from freedom, or rather the Greek idea, because um, what do you have in the slave situation? You have the slave, you have the slave owner, and you have those who were never enslaved, who were free. And, uh, and they begin to define their condition as a desirable one, not being a slave. You see, um, <laughs> these are the hoplites, and um, the um, and the free. Don't remember that Greece was not Rome. The majority of the um, quote unquote non-slave were still the small farmers who had been freed from debt bondage way back by Solon, right? And so they had already begun to cherish that an idea of not being um, debt bonded. And when you brought in a lot of slaves. It was even more reinforced by the fact that they were not them. The barbarians, uh, non-Greek, uh, we are this superior group who are the non-slaves, in other words, the free. So you had a convergence of forces, the sort of large uh, um, um, you know, mass of um, free, proud, 
non-slave um, 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 farm, small farmers, you had um, who were celebrating the fact that they were not slaves and that they were both historically mean that they were no longer dead bond vans and that was their great victory, as well as not being slaves, these people were being brought in. So there's that notion of freedom. And you had the notion of freedom from, <coughs> from the elite who celebrated the fact that they were powerful and power becomes an important element in defining what the, to the slave master's view of freedom, the, the idea of being an absolute control and being able to defend your country as well as to exercise power within your own society. And of course, there was the slave <coughs> for whom it was simply a matter of getting the hell out of this horrible situation. In other words, the negative freedom. So, so what emerged now from, very, from the very beginning is a tripartite idea of freedom. Um, so it was much more complex. It's very complex development. So you had the slave's idea. Freedom is being not under the domination of another. Liberation. You had the, um, the idea emerging among the mass of the free farmers of we being free by virtue of we are being part of the collective entity, which is Greek, which will not be dominated by anyone else and who are not slave. And you had the idea of freedom as power. So um, I, I refer to this in Freedom in the Making of Western Culture as, the, as, a, as a triad, as a cardinal triad. I use a musical metaphor. And it's important to recognize this idea emerging together. It's not just the slave negative idea. Indeed, often the elites may even look down on that. It, although they recognize that if you're going to be free in the sense of exercising power, you have to be free in the sense of not being under the power of another. And then you have the idea of being free in the sense of sharing in a collective power and not being part of that despised group group who, um, you know, there are horrible descriptions of slaves in, in um, uh, two-footed stock. Um, and so... Very by the end of the fifth century, you had this triad emerging, and so it's 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 a it's a remarkable development. Not only in the sense that freedom became such a powerful idea, but that it had this rather complex tripartite um, feature about it. So, in which slavery was central. Then I usually use the triangle: power uh, in the middle. Uh, or out of slavery in the middle, and freedom is the sense of not being a slave, negative freedom. Freedom is the sense of exercising absolute power, um, and freedom in the sense of sharing in that collective power and not being a slave, and sharing with the master class the idea of belonging, sort of Herrenvork notion. Uh, they were all there in the seas of freedom, and you have to understand how then the slave owner became involved in celebrating this idea, as well as the ex-slave, as well as people who were neither slave owners and slaves, but who took pride in the fact that we are among the beloved. In fact, it is sort of a, a, a revival, an extension of the old notion of freedom as among the beloved, which the, 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 the farmers, the small farmers who were free, who became very proud of the fact that they were Greek, they were not barbarians, they were not slaves, and barbarians and slaves became identified. And, um, and, and so those three ideas sort of emerge in this remarkable sort of um, synthesis 
in about the latter half of the 5th century. That is what's this is the most remarkable sort of cultural um, development in, uh, in, 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 in at that time. Can I offer you, um, like, a sort of grand historical narrative of, like, exactly what's on the line with this development here? Because this is, this is a sort of view I've developed that sort of sits uncomfortably with my sort of political left-wing leanings um but i I, and it's not in your work but it's sort of developed from reading your work which is the other thing we have to remind ourselves is that human civilization is already three thousand years old at this point like if you track the earliest writings and so on in egypt in babylon and in so on so you have a situation where the so-called fertile crescent you have about half of all the people living in the world are living in like i guess we're not supposed to use the word the middle east but that sort of area and in egypt and so on and you've had essentially I don't want to say stasis, there were some developments, but the highest orders, the highest values were those of stability and order, and like you get this with the Persians and Cyrus in particular, of like maintaining the world rather than like building or growing the world. And then you get this value that appears in Greece that's so socially revolutionary and dynamic. And like I was really adverse to this because you get someone like Uh, John Stuart Mill, who I do like, said that um, the Battle of Marathon was more important in British history than the Battle of Hastings. And when you read that the first time, it just sounds like the worst sort of, like, British flag-waving self-congratulation in the world, right? But... Then, you know, I read your book, and you have this idea that that, that this was not inevitable, that this value develops, and it must be acknowledged that its survival was not an unmitigated moral good, in that the survival of this value is going to lead to the West eventually way down the road, brutalizing and enslaving the entire rest of the world, and all of the evil involved with that, but it's also going to lead to the genuine advances and cultural accomplishments of the West. That is genuinely on the line at the Battle of Marathon. You've got these 9,000 Greek hoplites defending what must be acknowledged was an evil and exploitative slave society, even by the standards of the day. But if they are defeated, which everyone expected them to be, then you might just get another 3,000 years of the Fertile Crescent and the Near East and the Babylonians. Like The whole, the whole thing of, of human history might not happen. It, it, human history is genuinely on the line at Marathon, or at least that's, that's a not implausible well, reading I, of it. Right, right. Now, let's say Western um, history. Yes, okay. I just, got back, I just got back from 10 extraordinary days in China, and uh, all sort of things were going on over there. Uh, they were already way ahead uh, in many respects. So uh, let, let's say Western um, history. Um, yes, because, you know, and you, because you know you're by by the second century you're you're you know, you're dealing well by the third century you, you you have the emergence of the Han Dynasty and by the way uh, one of my favorite um, classicists um, is, 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 um, is um, several of them in fact are now been sort of drawing interesting parallels between Greece and China and. Um, at, at that um, at about the same time, but I mean that's that, that's that's highly speculated. The important point is that things are happening in China and uh, and Japan, which are different. But Western history, yes, I'm prepared to admit that there were developments here which could have gone 
in very different ways. Um, and I, I did I did not been for marathon, um, maybe, but other 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 developments too. I mean, but remember, you know, um, um, just to um, one could test this idea, of course, um, by looking at what happened um, um, in Sicily when the Athenian army was totally defeated um, and later on. I mean, you know, it, it didn't lead to um, the collapse of civilization, but then one could say that that um, um, these were in Persians. They were, in a way, fellow Greeks who... Um, And also Um, Athens itself physically survived, however scarred they were by the experience. Yes, yes, yes. So, so, so we're, um, you know, as I said, it took me quite some time to acknowledge what the facts seem to be um, stating. And by the way, a lot of people don't accept this. So that one of my, one person whom I greatly respect, and I'm sure you do, who has been somewhat critical, um, uh, gently so, and that's Amartya Sen, the um, very eminent philosopher, economist. Uh, Amartya refuses to accept this reading of history and freedom. He's written very sort of lucidly and powerfully on freedom himself. Um, But he is stated flatly that, you know, um, it happened in India. And, but the examples he gives is rather odd. I mean, you know, because, I mean I've mean, i said to him, um, look, I'm not saying that the idea, the simple idea of being, um, that is good not to be a slave didn't exist in the same way that the simple idea of not being homeless <laughs> is a good idea. I mean, obviously, it's such a simple idea, at least in its most basic not being a slave notion, that anywhere slaves existed, you, they would want to be free. Um, uh, and, and, but that's not what I'm talking about. Um, what I'm talking about is this very complex, very powerful valorization of a, a cultural um, trope, a cultural uh, value, uh, which then becomes the preeminent value in the civilization. There's nothing like this anywhere else in the world. I mean, the fact that some Indian sage may one day sort of get up and say, well, this might, this might be a good idea, but it, it, it was born there and it died there. I mean, you know, and I mean, and simply say it's in this text, this ancient Sanskrit text doesn't, it misses the whole point. The point being that um, you have this extraordinary um, valorization of an idea which originated under such extraordinary circumstances. And how did this happen? And why did this happen? And, and, and the fact that it happened only once um, in, 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 um, in, in ancient Athens and um, is, is, is truly extraordinary. And there's no denying that fact because I can see, I mean, in fact, I spent a long chapter trying to explain why it didn't happen el- elsewhere, even though you had slavery, and which I think... Um, I haven't seen a good response. So, so what's what's so, what's the answer to why it didn't happen elsewhere? Uh, it didn't happen. We already mentioned that you did not have large-scale slave society. Moses Finley, Sir Moses Finley, made this critical distinction between slaveholding societies, which you get everywhere, um, and slave society, society which becomes 
almost completely dependent, certainly an elite totally dependent on slaves. That is the crucial new structural uh, factor in ancient Athens. Nowhere else did that exist, not in any of the Near Eastern societies. When the Near Eastern societies, by the way, um, the, the, the Greeks may have possibly exaggerated. I mean, uh, well, no, they, they didn't. But if, they, if had they been, uh, you take the counterfactual, um, defeated at Marathon, what they would have done with them is what they would have done, what they had done in, with a lot of other peoples, and it's all over the Bible, and it's all over the ancient Near Eastern history, which is to make them subject peoples. Or they may have carted off quite a few of, uh, of them and done with them as had been done by the Egyptians with the um, with the Jews. That is to say, replanted them somewhere else and as subject peoples uh, or subjected them in their own lands in which they paid tribute and so on. But most, the world before Athens did not find slavery a good idea as a way of exploiting people. The Chinese, <laughs> who built great structures, great walls, and great civilizations with those elaborate irrigation works, um, found other ways of exploiting people. They used the corvée system. Um, I think there are lots of ways in which you can exploit people other than by slavery, and there are other more efficient ways even. Uh, the Chinese, I mean, there was slavery in Han China, and there was slavery rights too. The Koreans had a fair degree of slavery, um, but by and large, in most Eastern societies and in most Near Eastern, all Near Eastern societies, um, <coughs> the individual enslavement of people on a large scale was not found to be a very sort of um, efficient way of exploiting it. People. There's this really powerful idea of like how surprising history is and how surprising things that seem inevitable to us really were. It's not, I mean, it, it's one, just quite surprising that you get this invention of slave societies, as you say. But then from that, just very morally evil invention, right? Then this weird new... I, I love your phrase, you say strange and uninnocent value appears. It's not... If you can try and, to the extent you can, without getting into anachronism, if you could try and situate yourself in the mental framework of someone in a Near Eastern society at the time, this is not a development you would at all expect. No. 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 And in fact, there are writings about it. So um, it's um, we have uh, we have several. Um, there is um, there, there's a collection of <coughs> writings on advices to princes, um, in which um, um, the the one of the advices about slaves and how to deal with them, and um, this is an elaborate set of instructions about um, that the best. The best uh, slave is one who comes from abroad. Um, don't trust locals, and so on and so forth. But I mean, these are all domestics, and um, and 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 the idea of um, uh, of freeing them um, was not, and the idea of being free never occurs to uh, in any of the writings, and 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 people who became free. Uh, <coughs> thought the best thing to do is to quietly forget about it. I mean, you know, um, even if you, be, you you remained in the household of the prince, as many of them did, um, you want to forget about it. By the time you got to Rome, and Rome, and if you want to move to Rome, because this idea which emerged in Greece sort of 
was reached, achieved its maturity and really expanded in Rome. But Rome was even more of a large-scale slave society than Greece in a in a way which is just incredible. I mean, Rome was the greatest of all, largest of all slave societies, and that includes modern um, slavery. Um, the work, uh, there's a lot of re- more recent work, um, Walter Scheidel and others who now work on the demography of slavery brought us a lot of fascinating new insights. It is incredible. The more I think about it, I never fail to be astonished by how extensive slavery was. Because in, in Greece, um, there's very little, apart from the home farms of the elite, um, you did not have latifundia farming. Go ahead and cash out the, the latifundia word. Oh, sorry. Latifundia is the word for ancient plantations. And you have, but you have, um, if you envisage something like Jamaica, where you have the majority of the population as slaves, and um, basically that is the mode of production, economically speaking, a lot of parts of the Roman Empire looked like that, right? And we sort of, we sort of forget that aspect of Rome because there's, then this is what I really love about your work is I think there's like two grand historical narratives, one which you might call the Western triumphalist narrative, and the other which is sort of like a reaction against that, that wants to go back and point out all the evils in it. And I think what your work does is it sort of shows this tragic interplay of good and evil in Western history. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Out of evil cometh some good, but also a lot of... Future evils and um, and you know I mean the um, the it goes right through to modern times. I don't know how far you want to come, but you know um, let me just give you one of the big paradoxes, which is so um, uh, obvious that I'm always amazed that people um, fail to appreciate it, but. Um, the American Revolution and its creation of this great democratic system um, uh, and this great document, um, this instrument, um, the Declaration of Independence and what has created, the Americans still celebrate their um, constitution as one of the great movements in the history of freedom, which uh, sadly it is. Uh, <laughs> but it was all the work of slaveholders. So um, uh, one of the things which I think my work does is, I mean, uh, and, and when I come forward this far, um, my response, of course, American historians have sort of gnashed their teeth and tear their hair, um, saying, oh, we've got this great invention, uh, or great contribution to society. Isn't it a tragedy? Isn't it sad that um, this is done by large-scale slave owners? But, it, but it's and like then, it's a blot on their history, whereas yeah, actually exactly. it, it, it was an instrumental yeah. part right. of its creation. It was one of the processes that led to it. It's not like it was great, but as in like, oh, I really support right. this politician, exactly. but he had an affair right. that's separate from his work. It's, it's instrumental to the work. It's not an accident that it was the slaveholders of Virginia who led the revolution and wrote the Constitution. <laughs> it's good and evil, uh, and, and it goes all the way back in in, human, in Western history. So, I mean, and um, it's 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 not an accident that um, the slave South 
celebrates freedom more than any other part of the um, of, of of the United States. Um, the um, this this contradiction is an inherent part of Western history, and most historians are very reluctant to accept this. The narrative has either got to be good or bad, and what I'm saying is that often in the worst of evils, you find good emerging, and in, often in the best, of, as you know, um, the, um, some of the worst tragedies emerge from the best of intentions. But Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Next week will be the third and final part of this interview series, where we move on to cover freedom in Rome, in late Stoicism, and in early Christianity, and what all of that means for the way we think today. One quick update on the show is last week I asked for some feedback on whether we should do paid ads on the podcast, or whether I should just every now and again ask you all to sponsor me on Patreon, and I got some mixed feedback on that. A few more people did sign up on Patreon, so real big thank you to everyone who did that, and a few people just said, um, well, you know, if ads are the cost of doing business, then so be it. So I'll take all of that under advisement. Um, I'm going to stick to the way we're doing it for now, and I'll let you know in advance any changes. As always, if you do want to support the show, go on our website and you can share it, you can forward it to friends, or you can sponsor us on Patreon at whatever level you're comfortable with. And I sponsored a couple of people on Patreon myself recently just to practice what I preach. It's super easy to do. Like, whenever people ask for money to sponsor online content, I think it's really easy to just pass that by. But it's actually pretty easy to do as well, so... If you're liking the show, please do check that out. Also, follow us on social media. Um, I'm going to be making some announcements of some really awesome guests who I've just recorded conversations with recently, or I'm going to be talking to over the next couple of weeks. So Facebook and Twitter are the best places to get updates about who's coming on the show and the directions that we're going with it. Apart from that... Thanks to everyone who supports the show by sharing or sponsoring, and thank you for listening to this episode. Until next week. <laughs>